On today's episode, we look at the tragic story of a man whose work drove him to pursue the question of whether kindness is truly a selfless act or an evolutionary byproduct of selfish genes. There's a rare isotope of hydrogen that gets us into heavy water. Loves a chemical reaction in the brain So let me be your Bunsen burner Let me be your naked flame Burn, baby, burn. Let me be your Bunsen Welcome to Light Your Bunsen Burner, the science history podcast that lights up your mind. I'm Mariela Rosas, and joining me, as always, is the kindest man in this or any other room. Remember, fake it till you make it. (laughs) I'm Jonah Baker, and it's good to be back. So thank you, everyone, for joining us today. I know we've been absent for a bit. But we both had a couple of things going on. Jonah was off having amazing, an amazing vacation, playing music, and I was getting a new job. Woohoo! <laughs> so now uh, Jonah and I, we don't work together anymore. Uh, I'm so sad. I miss I'm, you, Mariella. The only time we get to work together is, you know, doing a really fun podcast for all of you. Which is like way better it's than so the daily better. grind we've been doing. <laughs> Though I'm still at that daily grind. Yeah. But well, I'm at a different daily grind, so yeah, it's uh, we're still grinding away just in separate areas. In separate sciences. <laughs> so, uh, if the 20 of you listening out there missed us a lot, we are back with a very interesting and kind of tragic story. Marielle, we got another tragic story? Well, that's part of our, 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 you know, our little shtick, right? We're like the weird, wonderful, and sometimes tragic tales in science, mm-hmm. so... We're kind of sticking to the tragic side for a bit. I promise next, no, no, next week's going to be tragic too. Oh, man. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. <laughs> so here to break your spirits down, <laughs> light your butts and burner. <laughs> but it's going to be more like dim it a little bit, get some wine and kind of <laughs> sob to yourself. <laughs> we'll, we'll provide the ice cream. Yeah. Well, uh... <laughs> It's only for 20 people. It's only for 20. Okay. We'll just get one of those like big, like, like gallon, gallon, gallon things, things from like Costco. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You guys are all getting Costco ice cream. Hope you like Sherbert. <laughs> or like Neapolitan. Okay. I like that one. Yeah, that's good I one. usually just kind of scoop out the strawberry middle part. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Leave the rest. Leave the rest. Why not just buy strawberry? No. Because oh. I'm to be fancy in Neapolitan. Okay. It's a better name. <laughs> So, yeah, it's going to be a little bit of a tragic tale. And on that note, just kind of a quick disclaimer. uh, Towards the end of the episode, we are going to briefly discuss suicide. So if that's something that you're sensitive to, just be aware that it's coming. Um, We'll give you a heads up. Suicide is coming for you. No. (laughs) No, it's not. Um, So usually, uh, you know, when I was trying to figure out what topic we wanted to cover this week, I kind of remembered a discussion um, that Jonah and I had about, you know, a while ago about how far you would go to protect your children or your loved ones, you know, up to and including committing crimes. Um, I think I had a really visceral reaction to that just because I don't have or want children. Um, I do have many nieces and nephews that I love, but that, you know, that deep instinct to protect them isn't as pronounced as it would be with like your own offspring. But Jonah, you are a father and you were on like that side of, I would do anything to, to protect my kids or like my family. Okay. So 
I remember this conversation <laughs> very well. And um, for starters, it was uh, to the extreme on both sides. Mm-hmm. There were, it was meant to be fun, I think. And it got yeah. very serious. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, uh, what it is, is uh, I never wanted to be a father, to be mm-hmm. honest. Uh, and it was a... A happy accident. <laughs> and um, Happy little accident. And the, the thing about it, the really interesting thing about it is like, it was very little selfishness mm-hmm. for the reason why I kind of didn't want fatherhood. I mean, I was having fun in a band traveling, but that's all shit I still do and can always do, you know? Yeah. I just, I have a very strange outlook and belief in this world and, you know, um, populating, it's it's time to stop. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, There's enough of us yes, out there. Um, but I just, I was aware due to my interesting childhood and the way I was brought up, um, I was aware of some of the feelings that come along mm-hmm. and um, they hit me good. And I'm glad, don't get me wrong, I love my kids. This uh, strange um, feeling of, I don't know, parenthood, fatherhood came over me and like, yeah, um, I will do anything to protect my kids, you know? I don't want to raise dumbasses, though. <laughs> you know, um, I know we went extreme in that conversation uh-huh. right there. And I sure the hell will teach my kids and discipline my kids. And uh, mm-hmm. I will let other discipline come their way. You have to learn. Yeah. Sometimes to fall yeah. is to learn. Um, but, yeah, the, there's a strange um, feeling that comes over you. It's it's like you, you um, will do anything to protect them. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes just the stupidest things will kind of get on you. Like, 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 how dare you talk to my kid like that or uh-huh. something like that? But it's like, you know, I don't know. You hear things like I've, I'm perfect candidate for this. Uh, you hear people, oh man, if I had a kid or when I have a kid or whatever, I will never do that. Mm-hmm. I so did that, you know. You were... And then I found myself like doing certain things that I said I wouldn't mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. as a, a non-parent, I guess. And um, it just uh, some of it is just a different understanding, a different outlook. Well, you know. Okay. Well, let me ask you this then. So that feeling that you feel mm-hmm. like to protect your kids, do you does that also apply to like close friends or like even people that you don't know? Oh yes. Like let's say you know you're out on the road and there's a car crash, are you going to stop to to help them? Yes, of course. Um, and that's kind of what we want to talk about this episode. Like, where does what what is that feeling, or why do we feel like that? Um, I think I know why. You do? Yeah, and uh, nothing scientific or anything at all. And I'm sure I kind of like, disclaimer, read through the script, but uh, <laughs> um, I'm we'll not going to get, I don't want to get uh, <laughs> scientific with it or anything. I think it's for euphoria. Huh. You know, it feels good to help people. Okay. You know, um, you know, you're doing right, you know. Um, but why does it feel good? Like what, what inside of us makes us feel good to help people? Like, mm-hmm. You don't know. Does, Neither do I, yeah. right? And that's why we're talking about this today. Yeah, I guess so. Cool. Let's check so, it out then. So, yeah. So, I guess, you know, where are we heading with this? Like, what are we talking about? Yeah. Um, so, this week, we're going to talk about George Price and altruism. And altruism is just a fancy way of, you know, saying kindness, like being selflessly kind. Okay. Um, but first, we're going to talk about vampire bats. Okay. So this is an example that I learned in my evolutionary biology class. And it's something that I kind of think back on whenever I consider why people act the way they do, specifically in terms of kindness or doing nice things for other people, or even when people are cruel. Like, why is cruelty a thing? And why is kindness and cruelty a thing? So 
Vampire bats live in tightly knit communities where females from several unrelated families band together. So these bats aren't necessarily related. They can be, but, you know, it's just more like a group, like a little community. Like, let's say there's like a little cul-de-sac of vampire bats. So the females pr provide warmth and protection for each other's pups. They do something else that's also really peculiar, specifically in animals. They share meals with their friends. So, Jonah, do you know how a vampire bat feeds? Kind of. <clears throat> so, like, there has to be, like, a full moon, okay? <laughs> and then there's this animal just chilling and waiting, like, doing his thing. Maybe they're sleeping or eating or whatever, like a cow or a horse or something. Mm -hmm. And then, like, the vampire bat will, like, turn into a uh, mist and, <laughs> and fog and come creep up on the scene. And then it turns into, like... Uh, vampire bat again but it's all suave and shit and it's like, suave <laughs> and it's just like it stares in the eyes it hypnotizes <laughs> the animal and then uh and it's like i am a vampire bats blah blah blah, blah blah to blah. drink your blood <laughs> blah 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 and then like blah 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 <laughs> he jumps on him and without the animal even knowing bites and just wait drinks. so it's talking to the animal first and then the animal's like well whatever <laughs> yeah it's wine and dine baby <laughs> Like, so, like, the animal is, like, so swabbed out <laughs> by the super suave vampire bat. Yes. It's that, like, all right, like, hey, take my not? body, do whatever I, you want. I don't even know. They have no, <laughs> they don't even know that that bat's there at that point. <laughs> you know? Okay. They go well, along doing its thing, and the bat drinks and goes back home. Well, okay, close. <laughs> so, vampire bats are actually, they're really tiny. They're these cute little things if you find them. Oh, they're very cute. cute yeah. They're very cute. Bats are very cute. Yeah. Really I like bats. They People are. don't, but I think that they're they're really cool animals. Um, so they're smaller than a teacup. They're tiny. And they're a lot less scary than their name suggests. Like calling them vampire bats, I mean, yeah, they do drink blood, but it's not as bad as you think. They're not like, you know, hunting you down in the middle of the night and like <laughs> coaxing virgins out of their room and then like biting down on their necks uh, so they do have this set of razor sharp teeth they'll land on the ground first and then approach on all fours that kind of makes them that's where the suave part comes in i guess <laughs> they're trying to sneak up on their victim yeah. um so they use those little teeth to make really precise incisions into the skin of their prey so like, let's say there's a big cow like they're gonna crawl up on it and kind of just bite it like the cow's the cow's not even gonna know no, that this tiny little it. thing yeah. is there. Like um, a flea almost. Yeah. Well, I mean not as small, obviously. But like but... a teacup size flea. Yeah. <laughs> That's cuter. <laughs> <laughs> so then they lap up the, the blood with their small little tongue. And anticoagulants in their saliva keep the blood uh, from clotting so they can keep drinking until they're full. So you would think that an attack like this would be noticed, but you know, it's it's so subtle that like these animals don't detect it. Like they wouldn't even know. Yeah. It, and also the cut is so tiny that it, it just kind of heals up as soon as the bat is, is gone. The so. interesting thing is uh, there's like uh, cattle out there and stuff like that mm -hmm. that um, look very sickly because these vampire bats will feed on the same prey night after night. And they'll take that much blood from the... Oh yeah, they yeah to where it looks like, like they're all skinny and dying and all huh. that, you know. Super crazy. I watched the thing on it one time. A, oh, did a you? A long time ago, yeah. Yeah, vampire bats are awesome. Yeah. Um, so during the, the night meals, not every female in the group will actually get to feed. 
So if a, if a bat goes more than two days without a meal, it will starve. So they need to be constantly feeding or else they're going to die. Super high metabolism. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and also blood is not going to provide like that much, you know, nutrients for them. Okay. So it kind of has to constantly be feeding because that's the only thing they eat. It's oh, not like they're also going around getting insects. It's just they're going for blood. Man. So. Bat- eaters. Oh, yeah. I mean, cow blood's delicious. <laughs> I love it. If that's all I could, no. Chicken blood. Chicken blood? Oh, God. So, uh, bats, in the, bats in the group will help out their, their friends by regurgitating food, and they'll help feed those unlucky bats. How nice of them. Yeah, that's, yeah, how nice mm-hmm. of them. Uh, but they do keep track of who has helped them in the past, so they're keeping score. So, a bat is more likely to help a friend who has previously fed them than one who has been selfish in the past. So, let's say, you know, Jonah... If you didn't give me blood in the past, um, it's going to be really unlikely that I'm going to give, you know, you when you're hungry. Okay. You're not going to spit up and blood in your mouth. Keeping score could be one way of um, seeing it, but what about just returning the favor? That's true. You know, like, yeah. Uh, like, like, I'd love to help you out, Marielle, but mm-hmm. homie over here gave me some blood last week, and Can I'm going to hook this blood up with some blood. This and blood. <laughs> big gangster bats, by the way. <laughs> gangster <laughs> vampire bats. Oh, God. Yeah. And, you know, kind of on that note, yeah, they will also show more generosity to those whom they haven't been able to help before. So let's say they couldn't, you know, their friend gave them blood sometime in the past, but they couldn't, you know, return the favor for a while. Once they're able to, they'll give them a lot more than, you know, they normally would for anybody else. That's cool. Yeah. Um, So this is an example of what's called reciprocal altruism. Like, you know, you scratch my back, I'll puke blood in your mouth kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know what friends do? Oh, definitely. I have a lot of friends that puke. In blood in your mouth? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't know. Maybe you need new friends. (laughs) (laughs) No, they're great. (laughs) I puke a lot, too, though. So, yeah. (laughs) I I like to give back. (laughs) (laughs) Friends who puke together stay together. Exactly. Especially when they're drinking. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, for humans, this is pretty common, right? Um, especially, like, among friends. Like, you're, you're, you'll are you help your friend move into, like, a new place because, you know, later on, they'll, like, bail you out from jail or some other shit. Mm-hmm. They'll, like, babysit your kids or, you know, they'll give you a ride somewhere when you need it. But kind of observing it in wild animals, especially, like, something like a vampire bat can seem kind of bizarre. Uh, we'd like to think that this type of, you know, forethought and cooperation is designated for very con- conscious, self-aware organisms like humans. But these observations pose a very troubling question as well. Like, what is kindness? What if kindness is not something we consciously choose? What if these actions are pre-programmed in our genes? What if human kindness is just an evolutionary fluke? Like, what if all these things that we think of as kindness and just being good out of for goodness sake are just a survival mechanism that we can't help. I can see that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, imagine like how I mentioned earlier, um, the whole overpopulation thing. Mm-hmm. And imagine if every single person was just like, fuck kindness. I'm out for me. Fuck you. I'm going to get you and yours. Mm-hmm. You know, like it'd be chaotic. Yeah. It's... Uh, it'd be more chaotic than it already mm-hmm. is, you know? So, We'll get into kind of trying to answer some of those questions, but let's start with the vocabulary. Jonah, I told you already what altruism means. Do you know, do you want to give back that definition? Altruism? Altruism. Like an alternate autism (laughs) of kindness? (laughs) No, it's just, it's like 
um, I see it as morals or, or kindness. Um, you know, um, you know that book that everyone fucking likes? The Bible? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if everyone likes it. Do on to others how you want to be on done on to yourself. Well, there's there's like n- there's some stuff that isn't very altruistic in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, yeah, I mean that to me is um, it right there. Okay. Like uh, because when you do good, supposedly good will come back your way, whether you believe in karma mm-hmm. or maybe that person wants to return a favor, or maybe that person may pay it forward or mm-hmm. what it may not be. You know, so it's supposed to like. I'll set a ripple, <laughs> you know, then you'll run into a shithead every now and then. I just don't give a fuck. That's true. So pretty close, pretty good definition. <laughs> yes. Personal definition. Don't give a fuck. <laughs> but, you know, according to like Miriam Webster, altruism is defined as unselfish regard for or devotion to the welfare of others. Okay. That's a way better definition. Yeah. Than mine. <laughs> well, that's why they're like Miriam Webster dictionary. <laughs> that's Webster. their job. <laughs> So this is like the very, very human definition, right? This is like the Mother Teresa definition, you okay. know, going out in the world and just doing pure kindness and helping others with no regard for yourself. Like a martyr. Yeah, a martyr. Okay, martyrdom. That's a good good way to put it. But then when we think of it in biological terms, like the, this is like the actual evolutionary biology definition, it's more defined as behavior by an animal that is not beneficial to or maybe harmful to itself, but that benefits others of its species. So this is kind of like the, the worker bee definition. So a worker bee does not mate, right? It's just part of a bigger colony. It does not pass on its own genetic material. Yet it will sacrifice itself by stinging in order to protect the whole hive. So it's going to sacrifice its life so that the rest of the, the hive can survive. And that's altruism in the biological sense. Okay. So why is this bizarre, right? Why would it? bizarre to me. Well, yeah, because you're, you're, you're human. To you, like, this is kind of, like, makes sense. Yeah. But let's kind of discuss how natural selection is supposed to work. Because okay. it's bizarre because it kind of goes against natural selection. Okay. So it's bizarre in an evolutionary sense. Well, we'll, we'll talk about how natural selection works or how really it's supposed to work. Okay. <clears throat> so what is natural selection? Jonah, do you want to take a stab at it? Natural selection? Uh-huh. <laughs> <clears throat> I don't know the definition of natural selection, mm-hmm. but I know like a couple variations of it. Okay. Like, for instance, the stupid die. <laughs> 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 or, <laughs> or there's, um, um, I really like uh, Mark, um, his his uh, kind of view on it, um, mm-hmm. who, who gets to um, create, procreate, you know, gets mm-hmm. to... Um, you know, natural selection will work like that. That's evolution at work right there. You yeah. know, the weaker will die off and the ones that can uh, mate will move on and stuff like that. Um, I really like uh, his view on it. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's pretty much it. It's like um, the filterization of nature, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Okay. Um, um, yeah. So natural selection is a mechanism by which populations evolve. So a populations of a species. So, or, you know, in, in, in basic, organisms that are better suited for their environment will survive long enough to reproduce or will reproduce more. Therefore, their genes will be passed on to subse- subsequent generations. So an example would be if you have a population of beetles, you have some that are brown and some that are red. 
So the red beetles are easier to see by predators, so they get eaten more often than the brown beetles. Since fewer brown beetles are eaten, then they can mate more and pass on their genes to the next generation. So then over several generations, the red color trait is going to be eliminated from the population. So we could consider that the brown color trait imparts evolutionary fitness to this species. And natural selection is really a really simple mechanism, right, that may act on the individual, but its effects, or what we know as evolution, are only seen generations later. It's it's kind of hard to see it in humans, because we've kind of gone beyond that very basic mechanism, but it's, it's, because people like to think of evolution as acting immediately, or like they think of it like that, yeah. but this is... This is taking a long time to occur. But if you really want to see natural selection at work in like, you know, your your lifetime, one of the ways that you could do that is by looking at the the emergence of antibiotic resistance in bacteria. Okay. So, you know, you put, you know, there's, you know, a species of bacteria. Some of them have genes that help them combat the effects of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. The others are who don't have those genes are going to be wiped out by the antibiotic. And those that are resistant are going to stay in the population and reproduce and breed. And then, and then the antibiotic doesn't work anymore. Yep. Mm. So it's a really simple thing, but it's kind of hard to hard to grasp because it's like such a big, it's acting it's, yeah. like in the bigger it's sense. It's always in motion and you don't see results right away. You mm -hmm. don't have that instant gratification. Exactly. So anyways. How does altruism throw a wrench in this kind of perfectly oiled machine that is natural selection? Well, going back to that that beetle um, example that we were working with, what if the brown beetle says to its little red beetle buddy, hey, come over here and hide under me so the bird doesn't get you. So now they're both hidden. So what happens here? There's a couple of options, right? They could both survive because the predator doesn't spot them and they both live long enough to reproduce, ensuring that both the brown and the red beetles are in the next generation. So then that that single mechanism of natural selection is no longer acting because the one of the beetles is kind of subverting it. Or in another case, they can both get eaten because the bird sees some of the bits of the red under the brown beetle and neither of them get to reproduce. So then there's that. It's uh, those two things are kind of throwing a wrench in there. Or now, what if the brown beetle gets eaten trying to save its friend and the next generation has fewer brown beetles because the kindness is associated with being brown, like a brown beetle. So like the brown beetles are sacrificing themselves for their red beetle buddies, but they're getting eaten. So then, you know, how it's supposed to work, it's like they're better camouflage, but that kindness is kind of coming in and like throwing that into a big loop. Mm -hmm. So it gets kind of crazy. Or what if like the red guy feels really guilty that, you know, his, his buddy's going to get eaten or like they might both get eaten and he jumps out in front of the bird and saves his brown friend and it sure it's survival. So then it it's like the same effect, but for a different reason. Yeah. Or, or like the brown beetle gets eaten by the bird. And the red beetle just, you know, for weeks, he's just drinking. He's just, and he just he goes into spiral. Yeah, he can't bear yeah. with it. And he's, you know, he's hanging, you know. He hung himself for beetle. Oh, my God. <laughs> I told you. We told you no. there'd be suicide in this episode. So. He couldn't live with himself. So. He couldn't live with He had survivor's guilt. And it's so, a real thing, people. Regardless. 
now it's pure chaos. Like the way that that natural selection is supposed to work and act on. Sounds on, like the bird comes up every time. Well, yeah, like the bird's Go like, bird. fuck, I'm still eating. The bird's fine. <laughs> so it's, so it's, it's, you know, makes Charles Darwin cry and all that stuff. And it's chaos for everybody. But wait a minute. So what if the brown beetle and the red beetle are related? Let's say that they're brothers, right? Okay. Now, we can make more sense of why the brown beetle is willing to sacrifice itself for the red beetle. Since they have a very similar genetic makeup because they share parents, if the red beetle survives, then the brown beetle's genetic genes technically survive too. That's true, yes. Yeah. So those shared genes are then passed on to the following generation. So the genes are surviving. Maybe like the brown beetle doesn't make it to to mate and reproduce but, but its genes, genes are, still, are yeah. still going on but so when you're born you just what cross your fingers and hope you're not a brown beetle well i mean it could you know if it could still survive it's just this is a way to explain why even if that brown beetle sacrifices itself mm-hmm. it's its, it's genes, genes still are still on. so like basically it's, it's the genes that has a bloodline yeah yeah, yeah. so okay. it's like the beetle itself doesn't matter as long as the genes are still mm. getting passed on. Okay. The the beetle's just a, like a meat suit for the genes. Okay. So meat suits, Lady Gaga. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So those shared genes are passed on to the following generation, and this is known as kin selection. So natural selection, you know, in favor of behavior by individuals that may decrease their individual chance of survival, but increases that of their kin. So let's say, uh, like your brother helps you raise your kids and he never has kids of his own because he's helping you raise your kids. Technically his genes are still being passed on and he's helping pass on those genes with because some he, of his teachings and well, it's, it's not, it doesn't even have that. to do anything with really? what so he's, even if he wasn't helping with the kids, his genes are still passed his, on because we have the same genes. Well, yeah. Well, okay. you have like very, very similar genetic makeup. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, in other words, you know, the, the individual may die off, but the gene survives. So and in this interpretation of what natural selection is acting on is all that matters is the genes, is that gene pool is still getting passed on. Okay. So you as a person or like as as an organism doesn't matter. It's your genes are the important ones. You know, based on our discussion about what we are willing to do for family, this kind of is a rational thing. Okay. You know, in terms of natural selection. But, you know, let's let's think about a different scenario. What if the brown beetle and the red beetle aren't actually brothers? They're just like bros. They just hang out. They like grew up together, went to the same, you know, dung rolling school or whatever beetles do. Mm-hmm. Um, they and were in a band together. They were in a band together. Yeah. They like <laughs> snuck out of the house and like went to keggers. Mm-hmm. So in other words, they're not related. Their genes aren't that close. Like, they're in the same species, but they're not, you know, very closely linked together. Like well, that. when you when you place it, like, when you say it like that, you know, like, they're homies and, you mm-hmm. know, all the shit that they've gone through together, you know. Um, you know, we all have friends that we would take a bullet mm-hmm. for. Yeah. Um, and that's because the history that we have together. Um, that's when that comes into play. Uh, you know, we don't have any of the same genetics or anything like that. Uh, it's just the time that we spent and everything we've been through together. Yeah. So when you put it that way, you know, 
it kind of makes sense why yeah, but, why the brown beetle would still do that. Yeah, and that's us kind of applying like anthropomorphizing these animals, like applying human traits to them. <laughs> but like a beetle isn't going like that's they're not, going no, to that's school. not they're a not thing. in a band together. Yeah, yeah, they're just they're just eating. Yeah, they're so. Why does that? Why is altruism still exist in animals? Like, why do we see it in those bats if they're not related? Like, it's. And now that that pulls is pulls it back out to realize that okay, maybe if they don't even share, like they didn't coming, they're not coming from the same parentage, like they're not related that way. Maybe they still have the same genes, but it's kind of hard to explain. <laughs> yeah, it's I, I see what you mean, like the same genes and the same instinct. It's almost like a polarity mm-hmm. to each other. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Yeah, and yeah, it's it, and mysterious because. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, what I'm getting at is that this is kind of suggesting that we are not really in charge of our own behavior. It's all coming from our genes. Our like genes, an instinct, almost. yeah. Um, one way that I've heard it described is that our genes are kind of like a parasite, like a parasite, kind of that is like controlling us. We're just like suits. Like everything that we are is just so that those genes get to live on what if we're the parasite that grew on the genes no (laughs) (laughs) we're like mm, what are those what are those like big um like the big robots in anime called like oh the mechs yeah yeah they're mechas okay so so we're we're the mechs that's fucking awesome gundam yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) we're the mechs the genes are the person inside of it controlling it so my weapon will be a, like a laser sword, and then I want that the shield and the gun. Like I definitely want that shield though. Like <laughs> it's just badass. So one of the people who tried to kind of make sense of this whole thing was George Price. So may I say, what a fucking great name, George Price. George Price. He sounds like he's like like. The game show host of every <laughs> single game show ever made, you know, like Bob Barker, get out of the way. George Price, Price is here. He, I don't know. He didn't really look like a, a talk show host or like game show host or anything like that. No, no, he was. He looked like a nerd. No, oh, no, big old nerd. <laughs> hey, nerds are in right now. That's true. He did have like that hipsterish nerd look to him with like the thick glasses and like the kind of crazy hair (laughs) so let's get let's talk about george so george was born on october 6 1922 in new york so he's an american um he was the son of an electrician and a former stage actress and his father died when he was only about four years old so uh george and his mother really struggled through the great depression because they kind of couldn't had a tough time making ends meet it was a hard time for everyone. Yeah, it was. Um, so from a young age, George found that he was much smarter than the kids around him. He was a little smarty pants. And he had a gift for mathematics and anything that involved numbers. So, you know, he was a member of the chess club and excelled academically. So he was already a budding genius, even from when he was a, a little kid. Wow, cool. Yeah. So this kind of gave him a sense that he was destined for greatness. Like he he was going to do something big. So game show, game show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Louis the Price Anderson. is Right was based off his story. <laughs> I bet. Louis Anderson, eat your heart out. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it used to be called George Price is Right. 
But then yeah. they're like, after he passed, you know, they're like, we yeah. should kind of, you know, rebrand this a little oh, bit. Get your animals spayed and neutered with Bob Barker, you know. <laughs> Stop those chains from procreating. Yes. Yeah. It's so, not nice. <laughs> it's good for the pets, though. It is. So he attended the University of Chicago, where he received a degree in chemistry in 1943. And then he kind of... Uh, how he was described in a couple articles was that he kind of um, Forrest Gumped his way through a lot of different things because um, he was recruited by the Manhattan Project to find better ways of detecting uranium in humans. And then the University of Chicago awarded him his PhD in chemistry for the work that he was performing for this project. Okay. So he he was he was part of the Manhattan Project. Um, I think he he did a couple of other stuff with them that's not very well known um so already he was he's kind of immersed in that global narrative so it's kind of feeding into that i'm gonna do something big mindset that he already has so he was also really aware of his genius so unafraid to argue his opinions he didn't always understand why others didn't immediately see things his way like he was one of those people who's really sharp and like was like why are you dumb why don't you understand what i'm saying like most of our uh scientists that we have talked about yeah, that's true. Yes. Exactly. Uh, um, also, his... There it is. His picture just popped up on my Google right now. It <laughs> took a while, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry. And yeah, he looks pretty crazy. He looks like my friend. Well, my one of my... We'll call him friend for now. Um, <laughs> Dan the man, if he looked like he was on crack. So he looked kind of crazy. <laughs> and grew facial hair, I guess. Yeah. Um, so he had a lot of faith in himself and science, right? And this made him turn away from religion. He was originally Jewish, but he became a quote-unquote militant atheist. So he was completely anti-science, I mean anti-religion, <laughs> <laughs> didn't believe in any form of religion, which this is going to come back up later on in his story. So also while working at the Manhattan Project, he met his wife, Julia. and they, la. Julia. And they married in 1947. Congratulations, George. However, <laughs> the marriage was fraught with conflict because uh -huh. she was a devout Catholic. Whoa. And while he despised pretty much anything remotely supernatural like religion. So this kind of, I wonder no, how I'm... they got to know. Oh, no. Yeah, she was a scientist herself working at the Manhattan Project and that's how they met. So maybe they bonded through that at first and then it was like, oh, well, you like, you think there's like... A ghost god or something but i mean like you know uh, i'm not very religious my wife is religious and oh, I, let really? her, I let her believe in what she wants to believe in you know she's but you're not a, a militant atheist though you're not so was that mean like like he was like to. very like no one should believe in religion because uh, it, there's no proof for it so he was just like the opposite version of a jehovah's witness he had to push it in your face kind of yeah um yeah. Let people believe what they want to believe. No, because hey, no, George Price is right. Jesus wants to come, then let zombie Jesus come. Everywhere. <laughs> he is sexy. Jesus is sexy. Yeah. That long hair and the beard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that groin cloth he wears. On the cross. <laughs> You know, all that bleeding is hot if you're into yeah. BDSM or something. You know, like, or, um, you know, the little crown of spikes. Thorns, I mean. <laughs> that just always turns me on, I guess. You know, when the lady says, hey, check this out, puts on a crown of thorns. I'm just like, yeah, baby. 
Okay, this is getting weird. Let's get back to George. <laughs> so we have George doesn't like little pricks. Okay, like, George. George. <laughs> George is married and is not happily married. Yeah, so. they're, they're not very happily okay. married. So they they did stay together for two year two years, and they had two daughters. I mean, eight years, and they had two daughters. Okay. But they did end up divorcing in 1955. Oh, I'm sorry, George. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of better if it, you know, you're constantly clashing. Yeah. 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 But, I mean, he was still pretty close with his daughters. Like, he was still a big part of their lives. Good for you, you know? George. Yeah. So, following his work at the Manhattan Project, George was a chemistry instructor at, at Harvard, and he was a consultant for Argonne National Laboratory. He worked on transistor chemistry, and he even did some cancer research. So, he's kind of hopping around doing a lot of, like, okay. different things. Like most of our scientists we've talked about. Kind he's of. He's a jack of all trades. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so, he wrote a couple of very scathing papers in the journal Science regarding extrasensory projection. So, he thought that was junk also. Oh. Mm-hmm. So as the Cold War intensified, he tried to write a book about it, but never finished it. So he was a very anti-communist, too. Okay. <laughs> he was very staunchly anti-communist. Well, at least the government will leave him alone and let yeah. him work. <laughs> he's <know>. like... <laughs> <laughs> Government's like, I like this guy. Yeah, like, cool. Look at him. Well, I mean, the, I think like the government was into the, the whole extrasensory projection, too. But oh, okay. Um, but by the early 1960s, he began working in the emerging computer industry. So now he's going from um, chemistry to cancer research to trans, you know, transistors to computers. So he was working with IBM. So it seems our George was kind of a, a bit of a, at a loss to what to do with his life because he's kind of constantly hopping around and nothing seemed to satisfy him intellectually. Ooh. So he was—he never found anything that was like, this is my big thing. He's a hungry and very inquiring mm-hmm. mind. Well, yes, he, he has this, this notion that he's going to do something great, but he's never finding a spot where he can do it. So as his biographer, Oren Herman, put it, quote, there was something in George that was really frantically searching for greatness. But, you know, career dissatisfaction wasn't the only setback for for the now aging scientist. So now he's kind of in his 40s and still hasn't, you know, done his landmark thing that need that he wants to do to be, you know, like a famous scientist or a prominent scientist. So in 1966, he was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and he he had the tumor removed by a friend who was a doctor, but the operation was botched. It left him partially paralyzed on his left shoulder and dependent on thyroxin, a thyroid medicine. So Damn. he was really pissed off at his friend for this, though. Like he said that he wouldn't he never forgave his friend for what he called the butchery because he kind of really did a bad job. He cut because I think he he snipped a nerve that because um, your thyroid is in your neck. Right. Okay. So he was trying to remove the cancer. And then it's he snipped a nerve on his left shoulder, right? And it left him partially paralyzed. And then he has to be taking medicine forever. And like your thyroid, you can live without it, um, but it kind of it's it's important for kind of regulating your mood also. Oh, so really? that's gonna come up, especially like if you know if you like he's taking this thyroxine, which um, it's also it also regulates like your metabolism and stuff like that. But it, it has effects on your behavior and your mood. And it, when you when that's removed or when you have like hypo or hyperthyroidism, it can cause depression. 
Um, so that's going to come up. So kind of keep that in mind that he's dependent on the thyroid medicine. Oh man, poor George. But, but you know, I mean, was was the doctor were they in a like a, a hospital type setting? Was he doing his job, or was this like, hey, can you come over today around three? <laughs> I, and no, it was it was in a hospital setting, but okay. it did was botched. Okay. Um, but he he George did receive a large insurance settlement that kind of funded the next stage of his life. So even though I mean, it's kind of a a bad trade off to me. Like he's you know harmed for life, and he's partially paralyzed. Um, but he does get money for it. Now, I know a buddy of mine, he was attacked by some pit bulls. Oh. And um, he got his arm dislocated and really kind of messed up and um, had to deal with going to the doctors and courts and all that. And mm-hmm. when it was uh, all done, it was like, like over $69,000 that he got. And, I mean, he bought like a house and a car and all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's pretty well off now. And He's not doing too bad. He healed up and all that. Um, I've seen him once or twice mm-hmm. have his arm fall out of socket doing something, oh. you know, pop it back in for him. Uh, he he bought the house and car instead of going to the doctors, you know. Um, oh. But, you know, to your own. And um, I've always seen it as a kind of a cool trade-off, personally. He got a nice know, house, I mean... a nice car, and he his arm is still – he gets to use his arm every day, just like everybody else, um, just – Every great now and then he has to pay attention to what he's doing, you know. Um, well, I mean, I guess that's a little bit better off than like your arm being paralyzed. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah, yeah. He, this poor man was paralyzed, like partially anyway. <laughs> partially. Yeah. I mean, he could still use it, but not in the same way that he like his mobility was restricted. Yeah. Okay. Um. So you know, he was at this point dissolution with with his work. You know, his life and lack of scientific recognition. So George left his steady job at IBM and moved to the UK in 1967. There was also something about he thought that his colleagues at IBM stole an invention that he that he had come up with. And then like it took off and they were becoming really wealthy. And he was just like pissed off about that, too. So he kind of wanted to to leave the U.S. to kind of have like a fresh start. What was that invention? Um. Computer assisted, it's like basically using computers to create, you know, like diagrams and stuff okay. like that. So IBM, you owe George Price an apology. <laughs> or like, you know, the people that he worked with at IBM. Yeah. So to quote that biographer, Orrin Herman again, quote, at one point before he moved to England, he was communicating with four separate Nobel laureates in four separate fields of research. And with each of them, he was trying to convince he he had made some breakthrough that would make his name. Everyone was aware of his obvious intelligence, but there was also something about his intellect, which was like a diamond in the rough that hadn't been polished. So we kind of clearly see a man who's really desperately longing for greatness, but never really finding it. So he wants to make his mark in the world in science. He he's really just kind of trying to to do like the one like the one shot thing and be like, oh, now he's great. He wants to be a one hit wonder. Kind of, yeah. Like he doesn't want to be a one hit wonder. Yeah. You know? Um, instead of like really focusing on just like the one thing and like building on it. So now between 1967 and 1968, George spent his time quote reading and writing in London on evolutionary biology. So he wasn't really like doing anything. He was just kind of living on his, on the insurance money. Uh, Much like several of the other fields that he had worked in, George had no background in evolutionary biology, but was kind of drawn to it after reading words, uh, after reading works by William D. Hamilton. So now Hamilton is considered among 
the most influential evolutionary theorists, kind of along the lines of Charles Darwin. He okay. was that influential. This is the guy who kind of came up with that theory of kin selection that we talked about earlier. Okay. Yeah. So he, but at the time that he started, um, at the time that George contacted Hamilton, Hamilton was really still relatively unknown. He had so far only published the first two papers of his defining work on evolution of social behavior just a few years prior. But George was particularly drawn to Hamilton's work on kin selection. As posited by a 2015 Vice article, quote, perhaps it was thoughts of his abandoned family that drew Price to Bill Hamilton's work on kin selection. The idea that evolution can favor the survival of one's relatives over one's own reproductive success under certain circumstances. So what they're kind of saying is that, and they're really just speculating. They're thinking, oh, well, George left his family behind and now he's kind of feeling guilty about it. So he, this like work that's, you know, about sacrificing yourself for like your family or stuff like that really resonated with him. But that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. He just really liked that idea. Also, like his daughters were, you know, adults by this time. So it wasn't like he was leaving behind little kids. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he was still, as they talk about later on in their lives, they felt like, you know, they didn't felt like they were abandoned. Like they were, you know, adults at the time and like their father like wrote to them and talked to them frequently. That's kind of. So it just, it just interests him. Yeah. Yeah. There was, you know, we don't necessarily know the reason why it interests them. They're mm -hmm. just speculating. I think it was just like a theory that like a brand new thing. And this was just the area that he happened to kind of like focus on. And then, you know, he reads this guy's work and he's like, this is really cool. This is kind of revolutionary that we can think of, you know, evolution like in this manner. So kind of in brief, um, Hamilton had developed a theory that explained why it was favorable for a species to sacrifice their own fitness in favor of what a uh, in favor of a close relative. So Hamilton's rule expressed as R B is greater than C basically states that an altruistic behavior will happen if the benefit to the recipient weighed by the degree of relatedness between the recipient and actor is greater than the cost to the actor. So in other words, you're more likely to do something kind for a relative as long as it's evolutionarily worth it. So like think of the honeybee. So if you're, you know, if you do something kind for your brother, you know, or like your brother does something kind for you to help raise your kids, then that's that imparts evolutionary fitness because his genes are being passed on through his nephews or whatever. I see what you mean, yeah. I hope that makes sense. Kind uh, of. <laughs> like, so, yeah, I see it as you know, like uh, we shared, like we said earlier, we share very similar genes, mm -hmm. and he's participating in, um, you know, like the, the kids would be our next evolution, you know, mm -hmm. um, in a or uh, next step in a evolution. Sorry, and yeah. um, you know, and with his, with him helping, it's his knowledge, and my knowledge, which kind of like, well, he's just helping them survive. Yeah, basically, that's all it is. Well, survival is knowledge. Well, instinct <laughs> well, and knowledge. Well, if we we just when we think about like evolution and like biology stuff, we kind of have to strip away a lot oh, of that. That yeah. like human, the human thing. Yeah. Um, it's just tr yeah. helping them survive, okay. live long enough that they reproduce, and then they pass on their genes, okay. which are also his genes because you, you and your brother share very similar genes. Okay. <laughs> I'm having such a hard time stripping <laughs> like, away my human side of me I right know, now. I know, I know. I'm usually so good at it. <laughs> in 
So uh, George wrote to Hamilton asking for a reprint of his papers so he could study them further. The two soon began corresponding regularly, but the implications of Hamilton's theories weren't lost on George. In essence, our genes dictated our behavior, even what we consider genuine loving acts. This depressed George and he, because he kind of hoped that human goodness would be exempt from scientific analysis. So kind of like what we're kind of talking about, that every action that we make, our behavior in general, is dictated by our genes. Like it's not coming from a place of we're just good people. It's like our genes are, um, it's evolutionarily beneficial to be kind Mm-hmm. It's going to help us survive and pass on those genes instead of okay. like, so it's coming from like real literally within our, our genome instead of like an outside force. that's you know, Oh, you're a good person. It's like your genes are. Take that Christians. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, it's less, oh, what is the word? Like metaphysical versus like literally like your, your genes are creating the set of circumstances that. So it's almost an instinct to survive. Yeah, kindness is kind of like an instinct. Okay. Um, right. So, however, he also saw the flaws in Hamilton's elegantly simple equation. It didn't always work, and it only applied to certain behaviors. And he became obsessed with trying to solve the riddle. And this is where we're going to spo- st- uh, stop for a sponsor break, uh, because we also have to pay for the research that I do <laughs> and like other stuff. So but if you guys want to so- show us some altruism, you can always donate. That's true. So we'll be right back. Okay, so we're back, and we're we're back talking about George Price and how he tried to solve the riddle of you know altruism and kin selection in terms of evolution. So, what he came up with changed his life, and this was no this is now known as the Price equation. And I could rattle off uh, what it it. Oh, can I rattle them off? You want to try to do it? Let okay, let me rattle it off. Here we go. Uh, you have a parentheses, all right? <laughs> w pyramid Z equals a capital C, little case O V. Another um, parentheses where it's W I comma Z I uh, parentheses now plus the capital E parentheses W I comma Z I parentheses parentheses. That yes. makes perfect sense. You, can, you know, like what, what we're the, done here. <laughs> what, the, what does the pyramid mean? <laughs> so that's that's delta. That delta. just means change. So yes. basically, W, um, for, it, W the, change Z. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just talk about it. Okay. So yeah. So this equation, um, I tried to really understand it. I really did, and I was like looking up videos of evolutionary biologists talking about it and some of them are just like yeah we don't really get it either but it's really important (laughs) (laughs) like i'm like i just want someone to explain it to me so for you guys who are you know mathematicians or other evolutionary biologists if you guys know like want to give a really good explanation to it 
you know, for us, that'd be great. You can just write to us at BunsenBurnerPod uh, at gmail.com and we'd love it. This is my like bastardized explanation of it. But before so- the bastardized explanation of it, if you guys want to just like send us badass equations and fancy ass <laughs> equations and just throw pyramids and shapes in it, that would be awesome too. <laughs> just like, like I said, fake it till you make it. Say it's the equation for like how you feel when you throw soda away or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about the price equation. All right. So the price equation uh, relied on a mathematical technique called covariance analysis, which measures how two distinct entities change in relation to each other. So that's why you you have that delta for change there. Okay. Um, So I'm really terrible at math, and the mathy side of ecology and evolution was, like, terrible for me. So I'm going to do my best to explain what it means. And just to note, what we're talking about right now is the complete price equation because he worked out that first part so that w uh change z equals the covariance of w i z i um so that he worked out first and then that second part that e uh with the w i w z i mean w i z i that he worked out later uh at the university college london okay so the equation can kind of be broken down into two parts, the covariance and the expectation. So that's that COV that stands for covariance and that E stands for uh, like expectation. Okay. Um, so in the equation Z, the, the letter Z is uh, the trait and C is the, um, no, yeah, Z is the trait and W is the relative fitness. Or it might be backwards because I messed up so the covariance part of the equation basically explains that any trait that increases fitness will increase in the population with each new generation so if a trait decreases fitness it will decrease for example you know if that the red beetle color decreases fitness it's going to decrease in the population right because it's not going to be passed on ladies and gentlemen i know there are a lot of z's in that but i hope you're still with us (laughs) So this is basically a mathy way of saying survival of the fittest. Okay. Right. There so you go. like what whatever trait, whatever genes are going to impart fitness are going to stay and in- increase in the population. So the other part of the equation, it gets more interesting. This accounts for any variable that could disrupt the covariance proportional. So anything that's going to disrupt that that um idea that this this trait is going to increase over you know that over is time so interesting because that could be anything yep that could be anything exactly wow so as explained in that vice article that we that i quoted earlier quote for example one of these factors could be selfish genes acting in a way that is damaging to the individual the covariance part of the equation that COVWIZI now describes the selective pressures occurring between competing groups and the expectation part that EWIZI describes the factors disrupting those selective pressures. This allows us to model how the behavior of selfish individuals compromises the fitness of the group, much like the behavior of selfish genes affecting the fitness of the individual. So this equation can not only be applied to like the individual, like within the individual. Mm-hmm. So like looking at the genes that are going to cause the individual to do something dumb. Yeah. Like drugs. Like drug. Okay. You sure. Know, like becoming a drug addict or mm-hmm. something. And then, mm-hmm. you behavior. Know, yeah. Change your behavior. So, not to mention you're going to pass that on. That you so, may pass that addiction on. So kind of the way to think about it is like that first part of the equation, that covariance, that explains like the biological side of it. 
that's that's the natural selection side of it. That others, that second half of it, that's behavior. That's all the other little things that's going to throw that you know wrench into the the first part of the equation, and it's going to change everything. That is so awesome. So this is this was huge. No wonder why these scientists don't understand this equation because it's like you know? shit. Because it could literally it could be, be anything, anything. and yeah. it can be applied to anything. I think George is with us right now. The yeah, lights just flickered. They're flickering. They're like, "Hey, you got <laughs> good you, job. You got it." Right. <laughs> lights off, flickering. Oh, oh there it goes again. Doing it again. <laughs> so, <We win. laughs> so George managed to show that behavioral traits evolved because they imparted an evolutionary ad- advantage to the entity they acted on. In essence, he showed that actions that outwardly seem kind are driven by inherently selfish genes. So the way you act isn't just because you're good. It's because your genes are dictating that behavior because it's beneficial. <laughs> but it's, the genes don't see it as like beneficial in any other way than survival, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. So it's just, it's just a fluke. It's just you happen to be nice because your genes steam or like – it's beneficial to passing on your your genes. Same thing with cruelty. Like your gene, if it's beneficial evolutionarily for you to be cruel, then you're going to be cruel. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. See that. Um, so now, armed with this equation, George marched into the Galton Laboratory of of University College London and declared that he had an equation that explained altruism. So he he just right off the street, no one knew who the hell this guy was. He just walks into like one of the main uh, directors' offices and is like, "Look at this equation. What do we do with it?" This so, is what I want to do so badly <laughs> one day. Just, just write down this badass equation, spend a little bit of time making up some shit for it, and just be like, check it out. If you don't understand it, that means it's real. <laughs> that means it's real. <laughs> Give me money or a prize. Yeah, so had he, you know, had any other unknown, unemployed American walked into the hub of human genetics with such a claim, they would have been laughed out the door. So had this was just like some random dude walking into an office being like, I just solved the biggest problem in evolutionary biology. What do we do with it? So. Instead of being like, like you know, kicked out, George walked out about ninety minutes later with a job and the keys to his own office. So Way they like hired him. They're like, bam. Damn, this guy put a fucking triangle in his equation. <laughs> Hire this guy, man. He's <laughs> the eye of the pyramid is open and awake. <laughs> Hiring this guy. <laughs> So, yes, yeah, so now he had done it. He had finally made a substantial con- contribution to a scientific field. But maybe the price had been a bit too high. Whoa. Unintended. <laughs> so, George and Hamilton, so that's Bill Hamilton, the other evolutionary biologist, they had become really close friends. And Hamilton noticed that George was starting to act increasingly more erratic after he developed that second part of the, the price equation. Remember that that second part was mm-hmm. while he was working at the University College London? So, around the summer of 1970... George had a profound religious experience, but he didn't really share any of the details with his friends. He also found himself deeply depressed and believed that he had contributing to proving that genuine kindness was just was in fact just selfishness. Basically that he proved that your genes are dictating kindness. So real human kindness, the thing that you think of when you think of kindness, just wasn't 
real. It was just all a con- construct of, you know, survival. But with that being said, it's still kindness and it is mm-hmm. still real. So why, so besides your little thyroid issue, why let it get to you? Well, because that that's a big problem. Okay. Because your brain chemistry is being altered if you, because, you know, more likely he had to just stop taking his thy- thyroxin pills and okay. his, you know, brain chemistry was altered. So sense, yeah. he's starting to get, you know, things aren't appearing rational anymore. Like, so he became obsessed with coincidences in his life, specifically that he, who had no background in evolutionary, evolutionary biology or statistics, could have derived the equation on his own. Because, again, he's coming from, you know, he has a chemistry background. He did a bunch of other stuff, but he was never... Now, he, did he do this on his own? Or mm-hmm. he kind of had help, didn't he? He used, well, you know, some of Hamilton's work and stuff. Right? Yeah, so he he looked at Hamilton's work at his at the Hamilton role, basically. But then this equation itself, he, he built it on okay. himself. I mean, there is some other researchers who had kind of come up with something similar. Okay. But the, he, by himself... Derived it. Okay. I don't want to take nothing away from George Price. I'm just <laughs> curious. That's all. Yeah. I mean, no, there was other researchers doing work into it. It's just that the Price equation, he just, he was the yeah. one, he came yeah. up to it with it and then like slapped it on someone's de- someone important's desk and they're like, oh shit. Yeah. Um, so he suddenly believed that God had chosen him for a reason. Now the staunch athe- atheist became an ardent Christian. So Aww. he, he went from like, no He's one should sell out. <laughs> Well, Jesus came to him in a dream. <laughs> I've had a lot of different people come to me in dreams. <laughs> but was one of them Jesus? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Did he tell you that you were that you were chosen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A couple times. <laughs> he picked me specifically because I'm special. Yeah, he did. Yeah, so now he began obsessing over the length of Easter week, which is kind of like a weird thing to obsess over. So he determined... By his own measure, whatever technique he was using, that Easter had taken 12 days, not eight. Because he was going through, like, the Bible and looking at different dates. And it was just, yeah, it was kind of like a weird obsession for him. And that's what I love. A scientific mind reading the Bible. You know, it's <laughs> And, like, trying you know? to apply some sort of, you know, met- methodology to, exactly. to, yeah. So he also stopped taking his thyroid medication completely, believing that if Jesus wanted him to live, he would find a way. So now near Christmas of 1972, George collapsed and nearly died. He was rushed to the hospital where doctors managed to save his life. And when he awoke, he awoke with the new conviction that not only Jesus wanted him to live, but that Jesus had whispered to him, quote, give to everyone who asks of you. So give to everybody. Be kind. George's new purpose now was to be a complete altruist. So just give everything away it's kind of tight but kind of not well i mean he's having like like a hallucination basically like this is becoming almost a delusion for him i like it when this kind of stuff happens it's like god save you those doctors Mm -hmm. they were just there to watch yeah god God, save me you know these were tools of god that he used to save me (laughs) yeah yeah and like i mean his behavior was you know growing increasingly erratic even before this happened like he's described like at the university college london like he's walking up and down the courtyard yelling i have a like a line to jesus (laughs) you know and just being doing all these like you know crazy things yeah and you know as a i guess we'll say disclaimer you know to each their own Mm -hmm. it just so happens i'm not into that 
You know, so if you're into that, no offense on your part, and I hope the best for you. I mean, like it's you know, being religious has its merits. It really does. It's yeah, it can be. This is to an extreme, though. This is him just you know, like I'm you know, it's whatever happens to me happens to me because I am in the hands of Jesus. Like literally, which can be very dangerous. Yeah, like exactly. He almost died. Yeah. So, after that experience, he started giving out his possessions to the homeless people in the area. He would often invite them back to his flat if they had no place to sleep. So, he was letting in complete strangers into his home, giving him anything, giving them anything that they wanted. So, like, they wanted his, you know, silverware. And they're like, go off. Here's my forts. They wanted his TV. Go ahead and take it and sell it. You know, he's just giving everything away. Um, and he's, you know, he's living altruistic or whatever, you know, and that's, uh, you know, plausible and all that, but he should like, he's not taking care of himself. Yeah. Not to mention as a scientist who has spent his whole life studying altruism and what it is, and he's trying to be that way. He should see the other side of it. Mm -hmm. How these people don't give a fuck. They're probably like, Hey, I want your shit. They're they're not reciprocating as a thing. Exactly. Yeah. And he needs to see that, you know, like he should know that as studying all this but he doesn't because like right now he's in an an altered state of mind he's yeah so george even gave away the cross that he wore around his neck to the first person who asked for it so that's like his his like i think it was like an aluminum cross that was like a symbol of his faith someone wanted it and he's like here you go so he had basically become a slave to the the idea that jesus had a great purpose of for him to quote George himself, quote, I am now down to exactly 15 pence. Thus, I reassure myself by telling myself that God's standards of disaster will shortly be satisfied. I look forward eagerly to when the, that 15 pence will be gone. So he's giving, he has given all his money That's away, all, all his possessions. And he's like, this is what Jesus wanted of me. And like, I'm eager for when I have nothing left. And that's when Jesus is going to be satisfied with my work. Yeah. So at this time, George was likely experiencing psychotic delusions, paranoia, and hallucinations beyond his visions of Jesus. So he was, there was, he was very mentally disturbed at this point. Okay. Like, so these must have been really exacerbated by his thyroid hormone deficiency since he had completely stopped taking his medications again. So as his worldly possessions dwindled away, he found himself sleeping on the street. So now he himself is homeless after he gave everything away. He lost his job at the university college and had pushed away many of his friends. So he was completely like on his own. Done now. Yeah. So he did eventually found refuge in a squatter's community where again he had another conversion. Now he realized that he needed to take care of himself, of his well-being. He had nothing left to give. Like, he lost everything. His work, his home, you know, all his possessions. The years of helping others and giving everything away had finally taken its toll on him. So now he's finally realizing, maybe this wasn't something I was meant to do. Like, this this has gone too far. So he, you know, he kind of, he got himself a job at a bank cleaning toilets just starting to get himself back on his feet, he had, you know, realized that he had, you know, a mental illness and had scheduled an appointment with a psychiatrist to get the help that he needed. You know, he was living in this community and he had made friends within that that squatter community. And there's actually a woman that he, you know, he had, he was proposing marriage to a lot of different people. 
<laughs> but there was one specific that he, you know, kept asking. And she was like a younger, like in her her late 20s. And he's at this point, like in his 50s. Um, so he's, you know, and like, she's just kind of like, uh, humoring him, like, you know, this is this nice like, older oh, guy. He's, you know, got, yeah. Um, and he, you know, he's really nice to her too. Um, but, you know, and I think that's also part of like why George kind of started to see that, oh, he needs to get out of this, this yeah. bad place. So it seemed like George would bring himself out of his altruistic grave. But this is the point when we're going to, there might be sensitive information. So on January 6, 1975, one of the squatters discovered the body of a homeless man on the floor of the room they shared. George Price had slit his throat with a pair of nail clippers. He had left a note to one of the to that woman in the squatter community who he wanted to marry. Although suicide was not stated in the message, it was clear that the troubled scientist had taken his own life. That's so sad. Yeah. It really is. So he was buried because he was completely poor. He was buried in an unmarked grave and his funeral service was attended by a handful of the homeless people he had befriended and two of the most noted scientists he had worked with, specifically Bill Hamilton. So kindness, um, nice guys do finish last and kindness didn't really get you anywhere. No. What was the survival in that one? Yeah, there so, you go, jeans. Wake up. Pay attention. Yeah. So Hamilton then went to the flat where George had lived to, co- lived to collect any of the scientific papers that he might have been working on because he was still writing. At this point, he had also contributed other stuff to, to evolutionary biology. So Hamilton just went to see if there was anything there that, you know, he could, you know, bring in from his, you know, friend. And he described the event like this, quote, As I tidied what was worth taking into the suitcase, his dried blood crackled on the linoleum under my shoes. A basically tidy man, he had chosen to die on the open floor, not on his bed. That is how his life became dreamlike for me, and also how his colorful thread in my science and my life ran out. Wow. That's so sad. Damn, Hamilton. Yeah, like this was like one of his closest friends and collaborators, and he had seen him deteriorate over a couple of years, Mm -hmm. and then he's in in the room where his friend killed himself. Or yeah. took his own life, and his blood is on the ground, and it's just—I don't know—I couldn't—I couldn't put myself in that position. So, the man who had given away everything in a grand gesture of kindness died penniless and alone. Yeah. So, kind of as we close out this episode, I feel like we should kind of clarify that it wasn't just the discovery of the implication of Hamilton's rule and the price equation that drove George to suicide. You know, he had been a troubled man for a long time. You know, mental illness and his thyroid issues definitely account for his, you know, fatal decision. And unfortunately, he is now mostly remembered as a scientist whose discovery drove him mad. That's kind of how his life is portrayed. His legacy or whatever. Yeah. And like, I don't, I don't believe, you know, his legacy. That's, that should be his legacy. He was a genius who greatly contributed to the field of evolutionary biology and who would have done so much more had he not died so tragically. And another, another thing that comes up is that kind of conversely to how um, kindness and altruism are beneficial, can be beneficial to passing on your genes. The other hand of that is that cruelty can also you know, be part of that. And an example would be, you know, 
if an organism does something cruel to someone else, like harms another organism, another individual, and that reduces that individual's fitness more than, you know, doing the act would reduce the fitness of the individual being cruel. It's beneficial for that cruel individual. So, um, I think almost, um, let's put in super layman's terms, like a bully kind of. Yeah. Or, you know, like you're competing for resources. Exactly. Like if crippling you is going to get me more tacos, then, you know, I could be injured by, you know, hurting you in a way. But if you're out of my way, then I benefit. People, Mariella loves her tacos. (laughs) It's unfortunate because I, you know, I don't eat meat anymore. (laughs) So it's so sad when like my family cooks. (sighs) See, she'll still cripple you. I'll still cripple you. (laughs) That she won't even eat. (laughs) Yeah, and that's kind of like one of the things that's brought up. It's like he realized that not only do, do altruists group together to um, like pass on that altruistic gene, but cruel, you know, cruelty also groups together to pass on that cruelty gene. So, yeah, Jonah, do you have anything to add? Yeah, um, I do. <laughs> <laughs> this was a very interesting uh, story. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when you sent me the script, I had only skimmed through the vampire mm-hmm. bat part because I kind of knew a lot about that. The rest of it with George Price and all that, I kind of wanted to be surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, and wow, what a guy. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. it's just, I really believe in everything he did. Mm-hmm. I just wish he could have seen that there was a, uh, another side to it mm-hmm. um, and that equation. That's a dope ass equation. <laughs> People look it up, it's fun. You probably won't understand it. Try to it. understand no one, it. No I had does. a hard time. Scientists don't understand it, but it's a fun equation. It's got like the <laughs> I had a pyramid on there and shit like that. Um, Delta. And, uh, <laughs> which is just a chemistry term, I do believe, right? It, um, it's mathematical. It just means change. Change, yeah, yeah. I remember in chemistry and all that, but yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's fun. Um, damn, I just, I'm just, it was such a sad story. I'm just happy there was no Nazis mm-hmm. in it. Um, well. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I toyed well one of like one of the papers that I read about it was like about um like altruism in people that rescued Jews during the Holocaust to complete, you know, detriment to their to their own safety, right? Like they're completely risking their own, own lives to save people they have they have never met, might never see again, but they were just doing this you, kindness. So that's where the Nazis kind of come in. Also, I mean, yeah. the Manhattan Project was World yeah, War II. Yeah, that's true, too. Uh, but, I mean, let's, like, talk about that for a moment. Like, okay, you just talked about those mm-hmm. altruistic people who um, were trying to save, like, the Jews and stuff. Um, the kindness uh, mm-hmm. that they were uh, trying to portray. And um, though the, the Nazis were totally out of whack. So that's they, that's the that's other the part. Other part of it, yeah. Yeah, the, that's, like, the cruelty side. The cruelty you know, side, you have yeah. the, the group of altruists trying to do good because, you know, like, that's beneficial genetically for them, mm-hmm. evolutionarily. But also you have the, the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. Yeah. Who are the wrench doing, in the mix. Yeah. And, this and is the wrench equation. in the mix. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. So, all right. And, you know, I want to thank everyone for listening. This is, like, your your altruistic tendency right here to be kind to us and listen to our show uh but if you like the show you can go to apple Podcasts and give us a rate and review if you want to be even more amazing extra kind and And you know altruistic and altruistic and this will definitely help you you know reproduce and pass on your genes (laughs) you can donate to the show by going to anchor.fm slash bunsen burner pod and clicking the support this podcast button and we'll get money yay yay 
We love you. <laughs> so if My you... altruism is already growing inside. <laughs> Thank you, people. Um, if you want to sh- uh, to share your opinions about this episode or if you want to suggest future episode, you can drop us a line at our email, bunsenburnerpod at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on the internet at our website, bunsenburnerpod.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at bunsenburner19 and on Instagram at bunsenburnerpod. So you can find us at all the, the little social medias. You can find me personally at Gatos and Tiaras on Twitter and Instagram, or you can just search my name on Facebook. Uh, Jonah, do you want to tell everyone where they can find you? Well, I'm your equation that's much more confusing than George Price's uh, <laughs> little pyramid thing. Uh, you can find me, Jonah Baker, on Facebook. Just type in Jonah Baker. Um, also, I have an email, believe it or not. It's at <laughs> bakerbase at yahoo.com. That's B-A-K-R-B-A-S-S at yahoo.com. Send me anything you want. I don't care. <laughs> Dick pics? Sure. <laughs> I'll judge you. Why not? Judge. You get like a, a rating from <laughs> one to ten. I'll tell you what. I'll even be altruistic while I judge you. <laughs> um, as always, I want to thank John Oddway for letting us use his song Bunsen Burner as a theme to our show. Go listen to his music. He is one of the true altruists out there for letting us use that music. Um, and hope you join us next week. We are going to keep the, the tragedies alive because <laughs> we're going to be talking about chemical warfare. All right. <laughs> we all love chemical warfare. Remember, people, throw the word altruistic into your daily vocabulary uh-huh. and just yell, yay! Yay! <laughs> George Price was right. Woo-hoo! <laughs> all right. Bye. Bye. Let me be your